0: Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Um, As always, brought to you by Cathcart Associates, so big thank you to them. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Hamza Tahir, the co-creator of ZenML, an open-source ML Ops framework helping people create reproducible machine learning pipelines. Welcome to the show, Hamza.
1: Hi, Liam. Thanks for having me on.
0: No worries. Thank you for coming on. Before we jump into... MLOps and ZML and all the kind of crazy things that have been going on in the last year for, for you and the team. We normally kind of do a quick run through of each guest's background. Hopefully I've got all of this stuff right. You did a computer science degree in Pakistan originally, and then mm. a, ma- a master's degree in Munich, right?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Are you still, and you're still in Munich. That's where you live.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I'm in Munich right now. Amazing. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible city. The, was the plan always to study in europe after you did your computer science degree or did an opportunity just arise
1: well that's a funny story i mean i i grew up in lower pakistan i mean i think it's a very interesting place to grow up uh like quite different from munich um it goes without saying i i grew up in like a family of which had a lot of professionals like doctors like like standard you know like pakistan people for them it's everything is like like the top tier person is the doctor and then we have the engineers uh, and computer science is way down at the bottom especially when i'm <laughs> so we did the british system so we had O A levels as well until my a levels so like high school i wanted to be a doctor as well and then at the last minute i was accepted to this really prestigious university um in pakistan which is actually as hard to get into as harvard is to be honest it's it's super hard and i was Surprisingly, I don't know how they accepted me. I don't know what they saw. <laughs> but then I said no to them because I had played a lot of games growing up and I somehow knew this computer stuff was what I was into. And I went to a computer science university instead. I didn't know how to write code. I didn't know what code was. I just knew that I like computers, to be honest. And this is my bachelor's. I didn't grow up like, you know, like one of those genius kids, you know, like playing around with BASIC or COBOL or something. I was, I was just, uh, you know, I like to play games. <laughs> so. So that's how it happened and then that was a bit of a revelation for me because i started understanding you know this was really what i liked uh, and what i'm passionate about and i i also sort of understood that what i appreciated about computer science wasn't perhaps the theory behind it although i found that fascinating as well the mathematics behind it but actually seeing it you know out in production so seeing how you could build an application or other people could consume that application and that was always very fascinating for me so i started sort of freelancing very early maybe one year after i wrote my first line of code i started working as a freelancer and you know like picking up gigs like five bucks or free even to automate some stuff in python this is eight years ago or something or nine and yeah so that's how the journey started i was hooked and then there was a point where i got enough money to like buy a ticket to America where my brother was studying, and I just wanted to go out of the country. I'd never really been. Uh, it's a bit of a closed-off um, system there. So, like, managed to like buy a ticket, get a visa. It's pretty hard to do all those things. Um, and then came to the United States for 40 days, where my eyes were like, "Wow, shit! I really need to get out of Pakistan now because I I think there's a lot of cool stuff happening um, in." you know, in America, mostly that was in my head. And then I applied and I like quickly realized uh, for a master's degree, I couldn't really afford uh, <laughs> to study uh, in America. So I, I looked around and then, you know, there was this one country, which I barely knew of, um, except for history class <laughs> in Germany, which was offering free education uh, with a pretty high standard. So I just, you know, it was sort of like picking on a map and saying, okay, let's do this and came to Munich, which has been one of the best decisions of my life. I mean, it's as you said already, it's a fantastic city, a fantastic uh, culture, uh, which I knew nothing about. Now I've been here six years. So it's been been a fantastic journey, and I think uh, it's a thriving ecosystem uh, of young developers, young entrepreneurs in Munich and in Berlin as well.
0: That's so cool, though. I really like it. And I like that it wasn't like... Because so many times on this show, you ask someone like, how did you end up starting your company or how did you end up in X location? And almost every time, it's it's a similar story to yours. It's like, well, these things all just kind of happened and I ended up here. Um, like, it's, not many people we've spoken to have had like a super, like, formulaic, like, this is what I wanted to do. Like you said earlier, like, you always wanted to be a doctor, then you become a doctor and then you do that forever. Like, that doesn't really happen in this industry. So it's really, it's really cool to hear people's... uh uh, backgrounds, and we're already going to talk about football since you're in Munich. But since you you probably don't get to that many Arsenal games, do you go and watch, watch Bayern one, Munich?
1: I did watch one, uh, uh, like in Munich, where you know Arsenal has this habit of getting absolutely trounced by Munich whenever they come. So it's like five one, five zero. And I remember this. Uh, I was a student, and again, I didn't you know I didn't have a lot of money, and uh, Arsenal were coming. You know, like back when they were. In the champions league and i'm a huge arsenal fan we were chatting before we started recording yeah i don't know why i mean in pakistan we had a thing where arsenal and Manchester united were basically their teams to support and i i guess Thierry Henry and the invincibles had something to do with that uh just like how they played and uh, yeah i mean so they <laughs> so they were coming over this is i think i don't know was it 15 16 and i didn't have any money i mean I, I remember i had like six a budget of 650 euros to spend a month and 350 of those went to the rent. So I had like 300 bucks to get through the month, uh, which is, I mean, fine for a student in Munich, right? But I, I couldn't afford a $150 ticket, <laughs> uh, Euro ticket to the Champions League. But I, you know, I was talking to a friend and uh, he said, dude, you know, they're coming, you know, you're such a huge fan, you would regret not going. And I said, yeah, let's go. So I just went out there and got a ticket. It, I think it was 100 euros or something, huge. And then Arsenal absolutely got completely annihilated. It was like one of the, and I was in the Munich end, right? So I was in the Bayern Munich end with all the Germans and the fans screaming. And and uh, I was the one and only Arsenal fan in the home side. And in all the way was full of Arsenal supporters. And I was like, I wish I was with you guys. I've seen you. Um, but anyway, so I had to, like like, by the time the fifth goal went in, I was almost like, Mock celebrating with the Bayern fans just to you know feel the atmosphere. I was like, you know, this is gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But anyway, I had a uh, I met up with some Arsenal fans afterwards and we had a great time. So
0: that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I went to a game in Munich a few years ago and we ended up in the away end by accident. And we had all bought Bayern Munich shirts because we were like, well, we're going to Munich, so why wouldn't we buy a shirt? And then <laughs> the guy in our hotel said, "Where are you sitting?" And we said, Oh, this is the ticket. Like, this is where we're sitting. I was like, Are they good seats? And he was like, Yeah, they're okay. He was like, But you're definitely in the away end. Um, And we were just like, we we covered up like the whole game without our shirts like showing, but it was quite a small team they were playing. So nobody cared. Like it wasn't like a a big game. So we ended up being fine, but I'm glad somebody told us so we didn't just turn up with full Munich kits and end up in a bit of a sticky situation. We will probably end up back on football at some point, but in terms of your career path, obviously you did computer science degree. you, You learned all about these things that you liked. You had been freelancing, studying in munich you kind of went on to be a software engineer for, for multiple companies
1: yeah.
0: and then we'll get to this in a sec but you ended up kind of focusing more on machine learning so being a machine learning engineer and then starting a company actually before ZML. so this is all pre-zen rather than going through every role with a kind of fine tooth comb what what kind of software development were you doing and then can, and when did machine learning kind of I don't know, when did it perk your interest, but then also when did it become a, a kind of professional thing?
1: Yeah, so uh, as you said, I went through a few companies in Pakistan. There was one in uh, the Silicon Valley that I worked for for a while. It was it's basically, it was a lot of like web development, but also essentially like, back-end development using different frameworks. We started with PHP, then like Ruby on Rails, uh, eventually Python. Did a lot of work around web scraping at the start of my career. I think that was a huge thing back like 10 years ago or something. Um, Everybody just wanted to automate, and you know what is now known as RPA, like robotic process automation. I I believe is the is the term, Um, and it's a huge industry actually. And I, you know, for me, 100 dollars working a week was a huge thing. Uh, And you know, I did hundreds of those jobs. I think I did about 300, 400 gigs. Uh, throughout my bachelor's and when I moved to uh, and when I did my engineering roles as well it was always about you know building small products and like launching them you know in like features essentially products or whatever you want to call them and as I said for me like product development and building an end-to-end thing and releasing it out into the world has been a has been a you know really interesting um and passion of mine, I've done a, like, uh, like, like you might have seen, I've done every year, I do a little side project, which I launch as an indie hacker as well. And I think that really helps me. Um, and the link to machine learning comes because obviously, when you're building these products for niche audiences, and as an indie hacker, a lot of the things you can do uh, and achieve and have a great impact is through machine learning. So my interest in machine learning arose, because I saw, I think, as many of uh, like people around me, that it was one of those things where it seemed a bit like magic that you could put stuff in at one end and a product came out at the other with just 10x or 100x uh, an experience or, or a thing that people needed or wanted. Um, and, you know, that's that's what fascinated me about it. Not really the intrinsic um, algorithms behind it. As I said, it's it was, uh, I mean, these algorithms are pretty old, but just the, what we can do with them and the way you could just—I still remember—if you, you know, as I think this is a very generic story, but you know, once you train your first like neural network and you see that data go in, and then you see the result, and you're just looking at it and you're like, "What the hell just happened?" I mean, this is completely <laughs> crazy. It's—it it's, is quite mind blowing. And still, at some point, when I, mean, I use stuff like GPT-3 or the latest models like Clip or something, it's—it's it's fascinating to me how how it all works and how how much more there is to achieve there. So yeah, there's always been a end-to-end value-driven motivation behind my interest in machine learning.
0: It's quite interesting. And we might get onto this if, now that you're working in this kind of ML-up space, but quite often, it's not a criticism, but quite often a trait of data scientists is that they really love the research, the, the theory, the, the, the kind of Everything that goes on behind the scenes, and they're less focused—maybe is the right word—on the end output. Whereas you mentioned it ages ago now on this this conversation that like that that's the part that really interested you, like the the output.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it might be like caricature of data scientists that they just want to focus on the models. I mean, the data scientists I was around were were always fascinated by the output. I just think that. If you, if you try to solve a machine learning problem, it's very easy to get caught in the weeds of the algorithm and the fine tuning and the metrics that you see, the the, the AURC curve, the accuracies, the models. Um, and, you know, it's very easy. I think it's, it's not a criticism. It's very easy to be model centric um, because that, at the end of the day, that feeling you get that, dopamine you get when you see that neural network achieving a certain accuracy is, is quite addictive. And I think um, it was also propagated, it was pushed a bit by uh, these courses um, on Coursera or like deep learning.ai yeah, and all these, you know, I think they're great still, but, you know, they did focus on the model centric thing and they trained a whole generation of data scientists to, to, to focus on those things. And because it's so easy to get lured into that experimentation, that training phase, um, then it's sort of hard if the organization is not set up in a certain way to take a step back and see, okay, where's the real value here? Uh, How is this model going to transfer over to the engineering, to the production? Because all of those things also um, sound and seem a bit scary to data scientists, right? I mean, if they hear about what a Docker image is or what a Kubernetes cluster is, they're like, oh, no, 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 this is not my domain, I can't really do it anymore. And, you know, I think engineers, have this way of acting a bit superior and just talking in terms that sound obfuscated. And you know, I, at the end, what they're doing is plumbing these things together, right? I, I always thought, I mean, I, I can speak like this because I, I think I come from the engineering background. A lot of the p- things that we do in ops and engineering is like plumbing. It's really not so complicated. It's just putting things together, uh, like, like higher level abstractions together and testing things work. It's a, it's a very straightforward job. And if you have the right abstractions, I think data scientists can achieve the same results um, with just a little more training and a little more motivation.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And yeah, because you come from an engineering background, hopefully uh, people won't be offended. Like if I said an engineer was like a plumber, I'd get (laughs) chased out of the country. And just before we get into ZenML, which is obviously why we're here, um, Mm -hmm. you you started a company just before it. I don't know a huge amount of background on that, but was starting a company given that you started freelancing a year after you wrote your first line of code, give or take, you obviously have a bit of a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Was starting your own company always, or or did it become something that you thought you would do? Or was it a kind of leap of faith? Like what, what happened?
1: It was, it was a gradual realization. I think when I was freelancing, it was, you know, freelancers are entrepreneurial. You are absolutely right. I think they're very underappreciated in, the hustle it requires to get jobs online, especially in these freelancing platforms, which are saturated by now. Um, so I think a lot of that I learned, like you know, just communicating uh, needs, business needs, and executing it on a technical level, and just uh, you know, finishing that loop off is something that I already picked up in the freelancing uh, stuff that I was doing. But I got a bit of the free uh, of the startup bug. When I worked with this company in Silicon Valley and I had a few other gigs, um, I spent a few stints in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Pakistan, uh, which was also sort of starting back then. And like, by the way, right now, it's absolutely f- like flourishing. It's it's a, it's a great market to be an entrepreneur. And so if there's any Pakistani listening, I think I would encourage them to, to definitely um, see what's happening around in Pakistan. But anyway, I, I do digress, um, essentially, The startup stuff was sort of accidental in its execution. I I knew I had a vague idea of having a startup, but it wasn't really formulaic. I didn't really plan it out. So I just uh, had this idea of always putting myself in positions where things could happen, Uh, like rather than trying to plan out the details or worrying about them. And I always try to make it a bit uncomfortable, um, you know, because that always somehow feels like there's progress at the end of that. And like joining this program, the Digital Product School, Uh, was a great idea because I met my co-founder, Adam. At this point, I was doing sort of my degree um, and also doing this and and a working student job. So I didn't really have space for co-founding a startup. But the idea that Adam had was really interesting for me because it was like he came from a, uh, he had dropped out from a job where he was working with a really old industry and they weren't digitized at all, right? And he was really interested in bringing Machine learning and artificial intelligence into that industry, and that was his motivation to join that program. Um, So he definitely had the idea of co-founding something. I didn't, Um, and we just sort of met and did a three-month program where we validated the idea that he had, and it it was a I could see the opportunity, right? And even though I I knew that I had to do my thesis and I had to you know pay the bills with like a working student job, I still couldn't resist. So we just. You know, like he was also great, like I worked sort of, I tried to work, well, I basically worked in the startup. I, I didn't really do well in my thesis anymore. Um, but essentially then what happened a few months later, we incorporated and we started Myot, which was essentially a predictive maintenance company. So we tried to predict when failures of moving, like mobility assets happen. So like trucks or buses or trains. And the idea was that, you know, these things fail a lot, but they have a lot of sensor data right now because they're like supercomputers. And we could you know, crunch through that data using deep learning and try to see when anomalies happen and when things fail. Uh, this was back in 2017. And uh, yeah, that's where the entrepreneurial journey, so the first part of that uh, kicked off. And that was three years of a lot of learnings, I have to say, uh, it's a completely different world, listening about startups and actually doing one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we were very happy. So like we intentionally didn't raise venture capital. We knew we didn't really have product market fit. And I always, I think we always wanted to find the exact problem solution that we wanted to do. And we, the way we did it is we sort of consulted predictive maintenance solutions a bit for, for a few years and you know got revenue and bootstrapped the company for three years and until a point where we hit the. Uh, idea that we wanted to do with venture capital, which is MLOps, yeah. um, and that was the transition to ZenML. So we then essentially closed down operations of the previous company, and we took all the learnings and we started another one, and this time with a fresh take on it and a different target group.
0: I really like that. And again, I've never started a startup, so maybe there isn't a right way to do it. But I feel like the way you and Adam did it with learnings your own revenue your own money you were trying to do your thesis at the same time like there's there's a certain kind of grounding doing it that way rather than just for example say the the idea you and adam had had some crazy traction from day one you got 10 million euros like after after a few months like you build a team out like it almost like it feels like you need to do a bit of learning sometimes to get to the right point, which obviously is where ZML is. And yeah, so that, that whole world of kind of MLOps and, and ZML, how, how did you notice that gap or, or that kind of opportunity from what you were doing previously?
1: Yeah. So at my we obviously had models in production and, you know, we had the MLOps problems ourselves and we got to explore a lot of the Tooling landscape, which by the way was exploding back then and is still exploding right now, as you uh, as you already might know as well. Hmm. So the whole ecosystem was uh, fl- like flush with new things to try out, and you know there were so many cool projects that you know we also tried out in different things, and nothing really felt right for a way uh, for us because I think what we noticed was ML ops itself. You know it wasn't really word in 2017, 18. It sort of started in, like, 19 or 20. But MLOps was very focused on the ops, I guess rightly so. Um, it was focused on a persona, which was the engineer, like the software engineer. And I didn't really see any stuff, and I think the whole team didn't really see any stuff which was geared towards data scientists, so people who actually created and produced these models and helped them sort of... Take it into production in a way that they had full ownership of their workflows and their models. Because that to me seemed like what we should be doing. Like it seemed like rather than having handoffs between different personas, and I mean, admittedly, there's a skill gap, right? Like you can't expect data scientists to know Kubernetes, but it always felt like it was wrong to just give away your work in a notebook to some someone and expect them to write it in Python now and deploy it and dockerize it. And that was really the frustration that we had internally, that we were using these tools and we were really frustrated by having to string together these tools to have a developer experience that we wanted for our team, right? So we had data scientists. I didn't, I didn't want them to learn Kubernetes. I wanted them to build the models and put them out there. And um, I wanted them to sort of be what is now? I mean, I guess you can call it full-stack data science. So you know, take it to the end themselves and have full ownership. Because I really think that data scientists want to do that. This is like links back to what you were talking about at the start. I don't think there's there's a inherent flaw in data science tests that they you know don't want to do this. It's just that there's no approachable way of doing this as as of this moment. And that's what we wanted to build. So we wanted to build a we wanted to build a tool that people who are uh, either learning MLOps or setting up an MLOps system or already have like a bespoke solution, they can use it and give it sort of like a standardized layer to their data scientists and plug in their legacy infrastructure in the back, whatever they have, whatever cloud they're running on, whatever stack they want to use, whatever tools they want to use, because there are so many, and still have that developer experience that I loved in tools that I used like Hugging Face or Spacey or I don't know weights and biases or like Fast API now, right? Like all these or streamlit, right? All these tools which are just so delightful to use. I didn't want to go through the whole, you know, deploying a mini cube cluster on my machine just to set up a simple ML ops tool, right? I uh, so that was that was the gap and that's where the story of Xenomel really began.
0: Nice. And the open source part is super <laughs> important to to ZenML right and i saw something about there's a different challenge to kind of building a company in public what does what does open source mean to, to kind of ZenML and and why did you go down that route
1: open source is i think sort of a prerequisite to that vision that i laid out right so it's we we could not we weren't so arrogant to to sort of take on that challenge on our, on our own right there is no way that uh, a team in munich or whatever like uh, just you know one team in the world can figure out this layer for all different sort of stacks all different sort of infrastructure all different sort of problems out there in machine learning so open source to me was the root of success of all the tools that i referenced Hugging face and Spacey and, you know, um, Streamlit because they managed to unlock communities who just were delighted by the experience and wanted to enable it for others. And this was also the indie hacker part of me as well. And I think it flows through the team that, you know, we wanted people to also contribute back to this code base and make it, you know, versatile uh, for their use case. So that's that was one part, just the sheer immensity of the challenge that we wanted to take on. Um, secondly, we, we, we noticed that there were tools out there, right, which were closed source and sort of solved the challenges that I talked about and also gave a good experience. But because they were closed source, they had a lock-in effect that our market research showed that data scientists sort of detested, right? So they, I don't want to name a cloud. I mean, maybe we work with them, but like, let's, let's pick a cloud. <laughs> let's, it starts with A. And they have some solution, right? And it's a great solution, right? So what they're good at, the cloud providers, is giving managed infrastructure in a way that they've essentially commoditized infrastructure, right? So they, they did it really well. But if you build an MLOps platform, whatever, which is a general MLOps platform on top, again, as I said, it's so complex. That you're gonna take opinions, and whenever machine learning, or whenever your users is just gonna deviate slightly from that from that opinion, they're gonna be frustrated by your APIs, and you're just gonna be throwing resources at it trying to make it, you know, work for everyone. Um, and I just it just felt like it would be smarter to just open source it, and say, okay, hey, if you have this thing which we don't support yet, rather than waiting for like a feature request or escalating a bug anywhere. Just hold on. Just you know, spend a couple of hours on it. We'll make it extensible. We'll give you a nice experience. We'll make classes which are extend. Um, you can just inherit from, and uh, it'll work for your use case. So, so we wanted that extensibility factor in there, and uh, open source is a prerequisite to that.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And also, I think one of the things that I've kind of learned in this MLOps world is that there is kind of a divide of like, just do kind of. <clears throat> Off the shelf, but locked in a little bit, yeah. like you said, or open source, and you get sometimes the best of both worlds, where you can get help from people who know what they're doing, but they can also kind of leave it with you. Like that's that's yeah. a really that's a really big part, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And we can you can see that in like I draw my parallels from let's say the web development world where I was in before. So like Next.js yes, or React or the whole React revolution, right? View and And then, you you know, we had, like, Marcel with Guillermo, who just is such a brilliant way of having a bottoms up sales strategy, right? Like he, like their team and Netlify and all those people just, like, revolutionized the entire web. Um, And I think a key part of their strategy was it was open source. Like, if you go to Next.js, I don't know how how many stars it has, 30,000, 50,000 stars on GitHub, active community, thousands of pull requests, the product gets better because of the, the, uh, uh, let's say, the network effects. And the feedback loop from a product management perspective is just immense. So yeah, I mean, it just felt very natural. Uh, It wasn't even a big consideration. It was really, for us, the prerequisite almost for the thing that we wanted to do. So once we had that vision of making it work, regardless of your infrastructure, regardless of your stack, regardless of your tool, Once we wanted to do that, there was really no other way to achieve that than to be open source, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's a really good explanation of it as well. And for ZENML, I mean, the company is quite young, right? Like, I think there was an interview I saw that it said July 2021 on your LinkedIn. It's like January 2021. But regardless, it's, it's a year or so. It's been a pretty wild ride. Like you, you guys recently announced uh close to three million dollar like funding rounds or like kind of seed seed funding. You've tripled the size of the team. The, the product now works across all three major cloud platforms. Um, not not bad for for a year's work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's been a hell of a ride, I have to say. I mean the the three years of my art again a different sort of company. So I've I've experienced a few different sorts of ways of building and validating uh, ideas, and one is the Indie Hacker way where you you know, sort of go out, and it's a bit like my brother who's also doing this a lot, like it just builds projects, builds projects for niche audiences, like people who write to, like to take photographs of squirrels in the forest, whatever, like completely niche, like maybe a thousand, thousand people in the world, but you build a product for them, you solve it, you validate it, and you, you don't expect to be a billion dollar company, but you expect to have those passive revenue stream from that solution. Then you have the consultancy sort of startup-based traditional, you know, slow growth uh, like that. I also did with Mayot. And this one is like the rocket fuel, you know, take these millions and now just go and uh, you have to keep growing. And that's your uh, the currency is growth. It's not really money. And money is just think oxygen. And, you know, you just put it in the back and it makes you go faster and until you get to the moon or you explode. so <laughs> so, 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 so that's basically the... Uh, like I saw all three worlds now uh, in a way, and this has been a completely different way of doing it. So you're doing so many things at the same time. I mean, first of all, raising itself was so hell- hellacious. I, I don't know if other founders, uh, I mean, I haven't met a founder who said it was fun uh, until now. But uh, for us, particularly, it was painful. The whole MLOps ecosystem is so, you know, getting a vision across which resonates with people, and then you know a lot of the people it sort of resonated with were in the Silicon Valley essentially because that's where the open core open source strategy is uh, more taking off than in Europe, I think, uh, which is changing now, but that's 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 how it was. And convincing them that, you know, we, we had this vision, we had this idea which was different, and you know, uh, we were going to take on this huge challenge is, of course, a tough ask for two people, right, who are just essentially just <laughs> having calls at 12 o'clock to whatever um, and like trying to convince people, and you know, we could talk a whole hour about the whole raising stuff, but I, I mean, I wouldn't bore the listeners. I just think that was a that was a really interesting part. And then uh, hiring itself is a huge part. Like hiring the right people is really, really hard. And um, you know, because sometimes you meet people who have the right skills, but they just don't fit. And trying to understand why they don't fit and what you want to do that will scale in 10 years for that fit. Is is something that I learned basically on this job. So that almost intangible, intangible way of trying to see how to build a company, a team which has the right personality is so hard than just looking at a CV and seeing the skills. And I know that you obviously, are like working this field is it's it's a, it's a very it's a very you know hard uh, hard job. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and and then of course the whole product market fit, you know, lean startup approach where you have to where you have to iterate so fast, and two weeks is like eternity for for a team, right? And for us, it was always like that. Four weeks, everything kept changing for the first six months, everything. So the the whole the whole it you know, started with a certain thing, with a certain idea, with a certain target audience. I mean, obviously the core the vision that I said remains pretty much consistent. But on top of that, there are so many iterations on hypotheses of how to tackle, like, like how to go to market, How what is the first early adopters that you want to go for, and establishing a whole structure around it. It almost, you know, it's just this old analogy of trying to build a plane while you're falling because, you know, you are going to run out of money eventually, uh, but you, you you have to fly. So um, it's it's been like, yeah, because okay, so you add more people and, you know, more people doesn't necessarily mean you're faster, but you have to constantly set up uh, structures and feedback loops and make sure that they're have the right uh so they're empowered to make the decisions to make sure that the talent that you hired for can really perform. And all the while you're juggling so many things at the meanwhile. So it's it's it's, it's been a it's been a hell of a ride and I, I think it's only just the start. So really looking forward to how it goes forward in the next year.
0: I love that, man. I had a couple of things I was going to ask and you covered it off perfectly. And and one of the things I said was, I bet it's been a hell of a ride. So I'm glad you you used that (laughs) phrase. There's so many more things we could talk about, but because you guys are are growing so fast, we'll we'll definitely do this again. So let's um, keep it succinct. Two final questions then. To kind of finish on MLOps, if you were going to predict what the rest of 2022 looks like in the MLOps world, does it get more mature, more accepted, are people still kind of behind the curve a little bit? Like what what do you think 2022 and MLOps looks like?
1: Oh, I always shy away from prediction questions. Because there's no winning here, right? I mean I can <laughs> if I'm right, nobody really remembers. If I'm wrong, then they're like, Yeah, this idiot. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's a it's a if you ask every person you ask is gonna have a different opinion, but I mean, you made it a bit easy for me in the sense that, you know, there is an obvious there is an obvious trajectory towards ML uh, MLOps becoming more standardized, MLOps becoming a standard term, people being more data centric, data scientists having a mass realization that they need to be doing more than just modeling in a notebook. I think it's it's gotten to the point where it's almost a parody of itself now that you know it's it's been repeated so often since 2018 that I think everybody sort of accepts that now. And uh, the harder question is how will this happen, right? So how, what, what will be the constellation of the market, the tooling landscape, the standardization frameworks that, that come in, is it gonna consolidate? Is it gonna fragment further and then consolidate at some point? Is it gonna go the Kubernetes direction or the modern data stack direction where there's a few winners in certain segments that coordinate closely with each other? So yeah, I mean, it's that's a harder question. I think that the way we are positioning ZML is we, We want to promote best practices and standardization through our our framework, Uh, because at the end, we are a framework. So we are at a bit easy positioning in the sense that, for us, everything out there is sort of like an integration. So if we build the interfaces right, that's the power, and we want that every tool out there that you think for a particular use case, whether it's a labeling tool or a monitoring tool um, or a deployment tool, that they can find it pretty easy to integrate with us, so that then we can orchestrate the whole workflow end to end for for uh, for data scientists. Because that's that's the where we want to target. We want to target then system level problems like reproducibility, auditability, uh, making a nice developer experience, which is like delightful for data scientists, and essentially empowering them to take these models into production.
0: Nice one. No, that makes sense, and I think you've done well at not committing to one thing just in case it comes back to bite you. Uh, but no, I think that, that makes sense. And then that's it for data science and MLOps if anyone wants to turn off. But my final question is, will Arsenal get into the top four?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: oh, he was so sure about it. That, I mean, uh, the
1: fact that we beat Wolves yesterday, I think it was a marker. Uh, it's it's not so easy to go up there and, uh, and beat them. And I think you know Tottenham is always going to be Tot- like Tottenham. So <laughs> they're not going to get in there. So the only people that I'm sort of worried about is was Wolves and Manchester United but
0: you shouldn't be worried about Man United and I say that as a Man United fan I think you'll be okay. I actually I feel quite smug because I I did predict that Arteta would be a very good appointment but it would take a little bit of time because he was mm. he was inheriting a relatively broken old disjointed squad and he's going to slowly making that better.
1: I think what people forget is a lot of Arteta is just the face of a change that's happening. Mm. So, so what happened in the like Raul era and pre, you know, as Wenger was leaving, uh, actually, like since like, David Dean left, since uh, Emery left and Arteta was appointed, and even towards the second year of Arteta, it's been a complete disaster behind the scenes. I, I think Arsenal fans know this quite well. I don't know if other fans are aware, but it has been a mess of transfer policy that doesn't make any sense to anyone. And I think now they're getting the shit together. So yeah, uh, and they're making decisions like Aubameyang. Like that was, I stand by that decision. I mean, he wasn't. He was like, he was the captain, but he, but he had to go. And these are the things that I really like. I think that ruthlessness is what we need in Arsenal.
0: So. Yeah. No, I I think when you're at a big club, you, you need to make big decisions, and you also have Kieran Tierney, who's the like best player in the entire team. So <sighs> um. <Captain.
1: laughs> I really am a big fan. So.
0: I mean, I didn't used to like him because he played for Celtic, but now I'm allowed to like him, so um, (laughs) it's good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining, Hams. I really did enjoy it. I think people will get a lot from it, and I would love to have you back on um, probably even in six months because I imagine that will be a crazy (laughs) difference. So, you know, let's keep in touch on that. That would be really good.
1: Yeah, it really was a pleasure, and thank you for inviting me.